extravagant grace, extravagant worship. We're going to talk about that today. This might be a very familiar view to you all. How many have been to the Grand Canyon? Whoa, not as many as I thought. Well, many have stood on the rim, right? And the views are really breathtaking, if you think about it. All the, all the textures and like, hidden canyons and hidden ravines, it's just really beautiful. Yet, yet, of all the millions that visit the visit, all the visitors to the canyon, how many do you think actually hike down into the canyon? Less than one percent. So out of the five million that came this year, we're, we're only like less than 50,000 have gone down in the thing. So Looking over the canyon, you know, it's, it's calling to us, come and see, right? But for 99% of the people, that's enough. They check the box and walk away, right? In, in his classic book, Knowing God, Jared Packer quotes a, a theologian, John McKay, and he tells, this is in the pre- preface, he tells of people sitting on the balcony of a Spanish villa, right? And they're watching people down the road, right? He calls them, McCain calls them, the balconiers, right? So the balconiers, it's easy for them to comment on the people traveling by. <laughs> look, at, look at that guy walking. He walks kind of funny. Or... What kind of outfit does that woman have on, you know? But McKay points out that it's much different from the people on the road, right? They have a different view of their journey, right? It's not theoretical for them. They actually have decisions to make, right? Where am I going? How am I going to get there? Things like that. It's, It's like viewing from the Grand Canyon, if you're never going down, you don't have to ask those questions. Now, so I love hiking the canyon. And you know me, I like to hike. But if you're going down in the canyon, you need to prepare beforehand. You have to ask yourself some questions. You have decisions to make, right? How far should I go? How fast should I go? Do I have enough water, right? You get past a certain point, there is no water, okay? And so you have to prepare. What will the temperature be when I come back up? So Carol and I, believe it or not, we have hiked all the way down to Phantom Ranch, um, a nine-hour hike, 5,000 feet down. Um, And the experience is just magnificent, right? You got the different colors, switchbacks, at dusk, the bats come out, and they cover the sky. We were able to uh, swim in the tidal pools next to the Colorado. It was only 115 down there, so it was really nice in the water. <laughs> well, 
There was extravagant joy in that experience. It was really magnificent. Now today, we meet a woman, Mary, right? We meet Mary, and we've seen her before, perhaps, in your, in your travels through Scripture. She does not view Jesus from afar, right? But she ventures into worship, right? She's seeing Jesus as he is, and then doing something about it. So here's my theme today. When we begin to see Jesus in all his glory and grace, we will respond with extravagant worship. When we start to see Jesus as he really is, then, then our hearts will be moved to worship. You know, as I was thinking this morning uh, about this passage, just meditating, it, it occurred to me, I just started asking myself questions, and, and maybe we work out these questions today. Am I seeing in Jesus what Mary saw? And then I wanted to ask, like, what does extravagant worship look like for me this year, in the coming year? And then, you know, compared to Mary, our vast knowledge of Christ is much greater, right? Why is not my worship like Mary's? Right? Those are the questions I started pondering this morning. So let's hop into the passage. Now, as I looked at the passage, um, I had this strange thought. Most of you know me. I'm strange anyway. So um, it reminded me of the book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. How many people have read this book? Hey, there you go. All right. If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to ask for a glass of milk. And when you, give you, if you give, when you give him the milk, he'll probably ask you for a straw. And when he's finished, he'll ask you for a napkin. And then he'll want to look in the mirror to make sure he doesn't have a milk mustache. And I won't go on, okay? But, and on. Well, when I look at the flow of this passage, it reminded me of that. I mean, so if the chief priest decides to kill Jesus and Passover is near, Jesus is going to go to Bethany, to Jerusalem, near Jerusalem. And if he comes to Bethany, well, of course, they're going to give him a, a dinner in his honor. And if you have a dinner, Martha's going to serve. And where is Mary going to be? At his feet. And if Mary is at his feet, she wants to anoint him with pure nard. And if Mary anoints Jesus, she'll let down her hair to wipe his feet. And if, he, if Mary does this, Judas will object to Mary's extravagance. And if Judas objects, Jesus defends Mary. That's the flow of our passage. It's a wonderful episode. So let's hop right into it. And the first thing, now, I have no cues today, okay? If you were here last week, the cues were all used up, so I went with E, okay? The example of extravagant worship, verses 1 to 3. The apostle 
Saint, Apostle John takes us into the house of Simon the Leper. We hear that from Mark and Matthew passages. And there's a celebration, right? Jesus is there, Lazarus, Martha, Mary, the 12 disciples. Jesus had withdrawn to the wilderness because of Caiaphas' decree of death to him. But now it's approaching the time of Passover. And let me just read these three verses again. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of extensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's only natural that when Jesus came, after raising Nazareth, for dinner to be given to him. You know, as we said, Martha is serving Mary's at his feet. This time, she came prepared. I don't know why. We'll talk about that. Very extensive perfume. Very unusual. And, and actually, we're indebted to Judas, right? He, because he, he's the accountant in the group. He says, hey, this value that 300 denarii, which is, um, which is a day's wages for laborers. So I did a quick math. It's at least $40,000 in, in our money today. So Mary is expressing her heart of worship. She pours out this extravagant gift. She probably breaks the, the vase and pours this over Jesus. You can imagine her anointing beginning with the head, because that's what Mark and Matthew say, right? And then it runs down to Jesus' feet. I think the author, John, here, focuses on the feet because that is the place of humility. And also, I think it sets the table for what we're going to see in chapter 13 on New Year's Eve. Mary was demonstrating extravagant worship. She is our example of the extravagant, over-the-top devotion. It is one thing to anoint someone's feet when they enter your house. It is another to do the whole body. She took probably the family legacy, this pure nourish, this priceless perfume, and then gave it all to Jesus. But wait, there's more. She actually lets down her hair. Now, when we read that, we don't really think much of it. But in that time, a woman would never let down her hair except for her husband. She would never do it in a group of men. But she didn't care what people were thinking. She only had eyes on Jesus. That's all she cared about. 
The perfume permeated in the room. You can imagine this experience, sense of perfume, glorious, lavish on Jesus. And everyone was enjoying the smell. Can you imagine it? Can you, like, Just, and how much you smell and trigger to us, right? So you can imagine for years to come, when people heard this story, they could, they could almost smell the perfume, the fragrance. What was in Mary's mind? That's a good question. Was she anointing the Jesus as king or anticipating his death and burial? You know, we don't know for sure. But we're, we're apt to discard her motives out of hand. However, as we recall Mary's devotion to Jesus, sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching, she is a student of the word. How do we know that? Maybe she was hearing Jesus' words echo in her mind. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Perhaps Mary understood the Lord's prayer better than us, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come in Jesus, right? Your will be done on the cross, on earth, as Passover drew near, as in heaven. Whenever, whenever Mary sensed about the future, she could say with her sister, right, about Jesus, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. This led to an act of extravagant worship on her part. I'm indebted to uh, Matthew Holmes for sharing a quote of a part of a book with me called Art Plus Faith by Mako Fujimura. And he says this. To the degree that we like Mary, experience the extravagant grace of God. To that degree, we will respond extravagantly back to God. So Fujimura is showing the connection with our view of Jesus and the way we respond. He is highlighting the reason why our worship is often lethargic or perhaps indifferent. We have to put things, of, sometimes we put the things of life in, in front of our view. And we can't, we can't see Jesus as we should or the gospel. So to the degree or measure we experience the grace of God in Jesus, we will respond in a light manner of worship. Little grace, little extravagance. Big grace, big picture of Jesus, much 
extravagance. Can we say, can we say, as the old hymn writer says, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. But back in Bethany now, though, there is an enemy of grace lurking. Not everyone in the room who is witnessing the scene and smelling the perfume is willing to surrender. Here we see the enemy of extravagant worship. Verse 4 and 5. But Judas Assyriot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Enter the antagonist in the story. John is once again contrasting that black and white throughout the gospel account. Though the other accounts tell us that the disciples grumbled too, yet John quotes Judas here. Judas did not have his eyes on Jesus, but the money associated with this expensive perfume. When Mary saw Jesus in worship, Judas saw dollar signs and craves more. Because Judas, he was a holder of the money bag, right? Like water slipping through his fingers, he saw the denarii slipping away. He puts on his accounting hat and pronounces his valuation of the situation. See, Judas is the enemy of extravagant worship in two ways. His focus is on himself, looking for what he gets out of the deal. And this leads, this causes Judas to be pragmatic in the face of worship. Judas is repelled by extravagant worship by grace alone. He thought that Mary was doing injury to the poor. And he views Mary's actness over the top. But he actually is hiding his greed under the veil of benevolence. So John calls out Judas, who will shortly betray Jesus, for 30 pieces of silver. Judas' mantra was W-I-I-F-M, right? What's in it for me? He cringes in the face of pure worship. It reminds me of the wife of King David. You remember the story when David was coming in, this is 2 Samuel 6, he's coming in to Jerusalem with the ark and he's dancing and they're praising, they're sacrificing. And Michal despises him. And he tells her, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible or undignified than this. Jesus. David was demonstrating extravagant 
worship. And it's hard and hard in his life. She couldn't take it. Just like Judas. So Judas was seeing Jesus as a means to the end. Not the Christ who would die for his sins. I like what Sam Storm says about this in his sermon. Really got me thinking. True love never calculates. Genuine worship is never measured. Authentic affection never asks, how little can I give and still meet the accepted standards of decency? The heart of worship, the heart of true worship, is unfamiliar with the word enough. Enough. So here's the question for us. How would we describe our worship? Would we call it extravagant or undignified, over the top? Would we use words like guarded or measured to represent our worship? On the continuum from Mary to Judas, where, where would we be? It all comes back to how we see Jesus. We may say, I believe in the historical Jesus, but to pour out unhindered worship, it's just not my style. Some of us may think, I want Mary's example of extravagant worship and devotion, but, but I fall short. See, when we begin to see Jesus in his glory and grace, we will respond with extravagant worship. How do we see Jesus that way? Well, this is the end or goal of extravagant worship. Jesus comes to Mary's defense, verses 7 and 8. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you but you do not always have me. So what does Jesus mean by the phrase, so that she may keep it from the day of my burial? We talked about this a second ago. Did Mary know she was anointing Jesus for burial? How, how much could she see in the future? But then I started to think about, what did Jesus teach the disciples? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Perhaps, like the Old Testament prophets, Mary's act of worship was like a prophetic Terrible. You know, like when Jeremiah and Ezekiel would play out a scene of God's prophecy to them. Here, she may be unwittingly portraying what is to come in the following week. Jesus saw Mary's act as preparation for his burial. Passover was the time when the lambs were 
sacrifice to cover the sins of the people, right? And here, John the Baptist's words about Jesus echo in the room. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mary witnessed firsthand the raising of her brother Lazarus and heard Jesus said, say, I am the resurrection and the life. She saw and believed, you are the Christ. How can we see what Mary saw? Now, fortunately, we now have the vastness of the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, right? Right here. We have the scriptures right before our eyes. The question now is, how will we respond? So I'm doing something a little different this morning. I'm going to take us to a prayer. I wanted to hand it out, but uh, it's copyrighted. If you're looking for a Christmas gift for a friend, there's a little book called Valley of Vision. It's just full of Puritan prayers. But there's one in particular that over the years has meant so much to me. So what I'm going to ask is that you maybe quiet your heart. I'm going to read this prayer to you. It's quite long, so uh, bear with it. But hopefully you will see Jesus. Okay? My Father... Enlarge my heart, warm my affections, open my lips, supply words that proclaim love lusters at Calvary. There, grace removed my burdens and heaps them on thy son, made a transgressor, a curse, and sin for me. There, the sword of thy justice smote the man, thy fellow. There, the infinite attributes were magnified and infinite atonement was made. There, infinite punishment was due and infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Cast off that I may be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy that I may be welcomed as a friend, surrenders the hell's worst, that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made ashamed that I might inherit glory, entered darkness that I may have eternal light. My Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from my eyes, groaned that I might have endless sob, endured all pain that I might have unfading health, bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem, bowed his head that I might uplift mine, experience reproach that I might receive welcome. Close his eyes in death that I might gaze on unclouded brightness. 
expired, that I might forever live. O Father, who spared not thy only Son, that thou might spareth me. All this transfer thy love designed and accomplished. Help me to adore thee by lips and life. Oh, that my every breath might be ecstatic praise, my every step buoyant with delight. As I see my enemies crushed, Satan baffled, defeated, destroyed, sin buried in the ocean of reconciling blood, hell's gates closed, heaven's portals open. Go forth, O conquering God, and show me the cross. Mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Amen. The end goal of extravagant worship is to have our focus on Christ such that our lives reflect the gospel. Can you see Jesus better now? The grace of the gospel is on display in his life, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and Mary saw a glimpse of this and gave her all. When Charles Spurgeon, as I close, the famous London preacher, when he preached on this, he said this, Our Lord Jesus Christ lives. Let us find some way of anointing his dear and reverend head, some way of crowning him who wore the crown of thorns for our sake. And then he goes on to say, I don't know what that looks like for your life. And I like that. I don't know what extravagant worship looks like for you individually. I would only want you to think about the last verse of the psalm that we're going to sing next after communion. When I survey the wondrous cross, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a presence far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for opening the word to us, for showing us Jesus, for giving us a glimpse of worship in Mary, how she poured out all that she had on Jesus and cared for him. Lord, would you teach us what that looks like for our life? In Christ and pour out your spirit on us that we may worship you in extravagant ways. We thank you that you've given us this passage this morning. We want to give you our lives back in Christ's name.